All right. Well, good morning, church family. Um, so good to see all of you here today. Uh, thank you all for being here. Um, as, as Lynn mentioned, uh, this is my last Sunday as pastor uh, at Arlington Baptist Church. Um, and there are a lot of emotions with that. I'm, I'm obviously sad um, to be uh, leaving all of you who um, my family and I have just grown so close to and who have impacted us in such a huge way. Um, we're also excited to know that uh, not only are we uh, doing what God has called us to do, um, but also in those whom God has brought to lead uh, this church and Caleb uh, and Casey and their family as well. So, um, so I'll be honest, I've never been less certain with how a sermon is going to go uh, than I am right now. And, and I don't mean content-wise, but I mean emotionally. And so as you guys have uh, gotten to know me over the last seven years, I don't know if it's the kids or the marriage or what, but uh, these little emotional spurts come out, so, uh, so y'all might have to bear with me a little, but uh, if you would, I want to preach. I mentioned last week we, um, we paused, or really we concluded our Philippians series early, and I challenge and encourage you guys to finish chapter four on your own, um, and the reason for that is because I wanted to preach something different for today, uh, and I want to preach out of Acts chapter 20, um, verses 17 through the end of the chapter, verse 38. Uh, and I want to preach it for a lot of different reasons. Um, some are personal um, and, and selfish. Others are uh, really just because it speaks to the reality of where our church is. Um, but to give just a brief context before we read it together, uh, this is essentially Paul's uh, farewell message to the Ephesus leaders. And uh, again, it has been a, a passage that's been on my mind and on my heart since God uh, very initially um, made it clear to Matt and I that we would be leaving. Um, but it's also one that I think speaks very specifically to, to what our church is walking through in this very moment, uh, the transition of, of pastors um, and just the very nature of gospel advancement, which we're going to see as we walk through these verses um, there will always be um, goodbyes. There will always be farewells, as Paul said. They'll look different, um, but in order for the gospel to grow, just logically speaking, um, we can't always all be together for that. And that's actually a good thing and something that can be celebrated. And so um, as we walk through these verses together, I think we're going to see that. And I hope that it encourages you guys as it's encouraged me over the last uh, nine months to a year. And so if you would turn, we're going to read all of it together. It's a little lengthy. Uh, and then I'm going to pray uh, just over the preaching and teaching of the word, and then we'll, we'll go in from there. It says this, Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 17. It says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and summoned the elders of the church. When they came to him, he said to them, You know from the first day I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility with tears, and during the trials that came to me through the plots of the Jews. You know that I did not avoid proclaiming to you anything that was profitable or from teaching you publicly and from house to house. I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. And now I'm on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town, the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me, but I consider my life of no value to myself. 
My purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. And now I know that none of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you because I did not avoid declaring to you the whole plan of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Therefore, be on alert, remembering that night and day for three years I never stopped warning each one of you with tears. And now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that I worked with my own hands to support myself and those who are with me. In every way, I've shown you that it is necessary to help the weak by laboring like this to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, because he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. After he said this, he knelt down and prayed with all of them. There were many tears shed by everyone. They embraced Paul and kissed him, grieving most of all over his statement that they would never see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Let's pray over, over God's word this morning. Lord, we love you and we thank you. Um, you have made yourself known to us. We thank you that we are gathered here together as a as a church body united by nothing other than your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would uh, continue to do that today. Um, as you know the exact place that our church is in its history, um, you know exactly where each one of us is at in our own uh, spiritual journeys. And as we seek to, to know you and, and, and live a life of sanctification, and you know exactly what it is that we need today, both collectively as a church um, and individually as those accountable uh, to you. And so I just pray, Lord, that your word would be heard clearly. I pray that it would be spoken clearly. Um, and I pray that it would just, with all the power that it has, uh, transform us in the renewing of our minds that we might be more like you than we walked in this place together. And so, God, we love you. We thank you. And we just give you this time as it's already yours and just ask that your will would be done in these moments through the teaching of your word. We love you. And so in your name we pray, amen. Uh, I want to go ahead and give you um, my main point. That's something I used to do um, often in, um, and then working kind of backwards from there. And so I want to do the same today. And so the main point is this. If you have notes, I encourage you to write it down. Um, if not, that is all right. I'll repeat it a few times as we go. Uh, but the main point is this. The very nature of gospel advancement involves goodbyes. The very nature of gospel advancement involves goodbyes. Goodbyes that are only made easier by faithful gospel proclamation. Goodbyes that are only made easier by faithful gospel proclamation. And the reality is, is that life in general involves goodbyes. Whether you're a Christian or not, whether you know Jesus or not, whether you're part of a local church or not, whether you're serving 
uh, God's great commission and you are seeking with your whole life to advance the gospel and further his kingdom, uh, gospels are inevitable, whether it's by moving because of your job or whether it's ultimately by death. We all will have to say goodbye to all people we know in some capacity or another at different points in our life. And the joy and encouragement for Christians is that one, our goodbyes have meaning and purpose and value. And two, there is actually encouragement and celebration that can be had in them. Uh, and so I hope to offer that today as we walk through kind of in three different parts. I want to look at this, this uh, passage of scripture and, and hope that it offers us encouragement. Um, and the three, pass- or the three kind of parts are going to go like this. First, we're going to look at the update that Paul actually gives. Um, second, we're going to look um, at Paul's Uh, Not only his update, but also the the motivation behind why he's leaving. And then lastly, we'll look at his farewell itself. Um, And and just for kind of an interesting point as as we look at this, this is one of three three times where Paul gave really long um, kind of messages. Uh, The first one he gave to uh, Gentiles, or or, sorry, excuse me, the first one he gave to Jews. Uh, The second one he gave to Gentiles. And then the third one here, he's giving to fellow Christians, specifically Christian leaders in the church. And even though we might not all be uh, Christian elders, the same words ring true for us today. And so let's start with his update, and we'll look back at verses 17 through, through 22. And we see in verse 17 that he sends or he summons the elders of the church. So he actually invites them. Uh, they come to him, and he says this. He says, you know, this is his update. You know, from the first day I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, enduring the trials that came to me through the plots of the Jews. You know that I did not hesitate to proclaim anything to you that was profitable and to teach you publicly and from house to house. I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. And now I'm on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there. And then skipping down a few verses to verse 25, he tells them, and now I know that none of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. And so to give a little bit of backstory as to Paul's relationship, which we can see just in those verses that that if it was filled with tears, that they endured trials together, that they served together with humility. They saw the advancement of the gospel far beyond just the, the city of Ephesus into the surrounding area that was Asia. Um, we see that he proclaimed the gospel to, to any one broadly in the temple, but also personally house to house. So it wasn't just that he was uh, unapproachable, but that he actually had relationships with these people whom he's teaching, which we'll see more in just a second. And he also evangelized, that he, he, he shared the word not just to the Christians within the church that was at Ephesus, but also to the Jews and Gentiles that surrounded, um, which would have been unbelievers at the time. And then now he is then leaving. And to give a little bit of history about his relationship beyond just what he shares there is, one, Paul planted this church. Uh, most scholars agree that, that, that Paul is the planter of the church. We see it in Acts chapter 18, verse 19. Uh, Right after he founded the Corinthian church, he goes to Ephesus, um, stays there, teaches in the synagogue, and then tells them before he leaves that his hope is to return, um, to which he does uh, in Acts chapter 19, just a chapter later. And he actually stays in Ephesus. It's recorded that he stays there longer than anywhere else, in any other one location that he did ministry. 
So if you think about all the letters that Paul wrote, all the, the heartfelt uh, you know, goodbyes or the I miss you, he spent uh, perhaps more time with this church than any other. Um, and we see that in Acts chapter 19, verses 8 through the first part of verse 10. He sa- it says, Paul entered the synagogue, spoke boldly over, over a period of three months, arguing and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became hard and would not believe, slandering the way in front of the crowd, he withdrew from them, taking the disciples and conducted discussions every day uh, in the lecture hall of uh, Tyrannus. And he says this went on for two years. And so he, he went there, planted the church, came back, stayed for three months preaching to anybody that would hear. And once he had identified a group of Christians, he then took them aside and, and discipled the church for two years. And not only did he plant the church, not only did he spend the most time there than he had spent anywhere else as, as a part of his missionary journeys up to that point, um, but it was arguably, and it's interesting that, that Lynn uh, referenced this about, about Philip in Acts chapter 6 and 7, uh, but it was also arguably where he saw the most fruit um, visibly and, and personally. Because even though he took just a handful and, and preached to them for, for two years, what it goes on to say in verse 10 is it says, So that all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. All the residents of Asia. I don't know if you know, but Asia is a very large continent. There are, very, there are a lot of people there and And I'm certain that doesn't mean literally every single person, but the point being that the gospel spread, right? Through faithful gospel proclamation and discipleship among a few, he saw fruit in the surrounding areas as well. And so now, all this relationship considered, think about the emotions that they must have felt to know that he was leaving for Jerusalem and to never be seen again. And and know that, that for them, that meant a lot more than it does for us today. Right? Because today, no matter where you are in the world, you're never really more than 24 to 48 hours away, plane rides. And that's if you're in the heart of somewhere really remote or you've got to, to drive a long way to the closest airport and fly to one airport to another. But, but ultimately, we will or we can see one another physically in person very easily in today's world. But also, we've got one another at our fingertips pretty much always. Uh, Maddie and I have family, both have had family and have family that are in different parts of the world, and, and you can see their face and talk to them on FaceTime or on Zoom or on all the different other ways in which you can actually see one another, right? And so I don't think we can fully even grasp what Paul is saying here. It's, he's not going to get to FaceTime them. He's not going to get to take a, a quick train ride to, to where they're at or a quick plane ride. He's not going to be able to call them or text them. Right? He sends one more letter that we know of, and that's it. We don't even know if he received communication back and forth or if it was just the one time. Right? Most believe that he did have people who kind of were runners for him that would update on how the churches were doing. Um, but even then, it was only secondhand information. Nothing at any point going forward is direct. And so this is where Paul is, is leaving them. And again, I, I'm pretty certain that, that few of us have if any of us have ever experienced a goodbye to that degree. I know we've all said goodbyes, but outside the goodbye that is our, our final physical death, there is no goodbye greater that we will experience than what Paul is experiencing here with the Ephesian church and their leaders. And so that's the update, right? That's the, the bomb that Paul is dropping on them. But let's move now to Paul's motivation. Why, why is he doing this, right? Clearly he has feelings 
emotions for them, right, to the point of tears as he's writing. Uh, again, he spent longer there, so clearly he, you know, got along to a degree, developed relationships, watched people grow, watched families grow, watched babies born up into the church, all to come to know Jesus. But why would he do it? Verses 22 through 24 give us a, a, a powerful picture of Paul's motivation. He says, And now I'm on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. But I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Paul has a singular focus that motivates all of his decisions. And it is what? It is the ministry that the Lord has given him to proclaim and testify to the gospel of God's grace to those who have yet to hear. And so for Paul, that mattered literally more than anything. Right? And it's easy in moments like this, I imagine if I was an Ephesian leader, you know, you, you kind of get the feeling of, well, well, Paul, like if you loved us enough, you'd stay here, right? Like your relationship's so close that, that surely he would just stay for the sake of the relationship that's been developed, which is so powerful. Right? But Paul actually encourages them that it actually has nothing to do with, with them. He's not even just... He's not even just saying that his motivation and calling is greater than a relationship with them. He's saying that his motivation and calling to obey and to, to be a testimony of God's grace to the world is actually more significant even than his own, his own life. Right? But notice the words he says. He says, I consider my life of no value compared to the, the work that, that God has prepared for him to do. And so Paul's motivation is not selfish. It's not just that he wants to go travel and wants to go do something new and wants to go uh, for, the, for numbers' sake or to make his own name great. He, he is going because God has called him to go. And he's not going to let his own life get in the way of that. He just said right before that verse, in verse 23, the only thing he knows, the only thing he knows, other than the fact that it is the motivation of the gospel that's sending him, is that in every town the Holy Spirit warns him that chains and afflictions are waiting for him. He doesn't know if he's going to experience the same kind of fruit that's, that's visible to us outwardly. He doesn't know that he's going to have comfort there. He doesn't know that he's going to meet new friends. He doesn't know that another church is going to be planted by his efforts. He doesn't know any of that other than he will be persecuted and eventually it will cost him his life. But the gospel matters to him more. It is a singular, singular thing that motivates Paul to do all that he does as it should be the singular focus of our lives as well. Because it is what God has asked us to do, to testify to the gospel of God's grace. What is that? What is the good news? What is the message that is influencing Paul's actions to such a degree? And I'd ask you, is there a, is there a, a, a foundational belief that you have that dictates every action that you have to this degree? I would argue for non-Christians that there's, there's not one single thing. There are great motivators in life, right? Family is a great motivator. Uh, work is a great motivator. 
even just the location of where you want to live, right? A lot of people move to Florida because the weather's nice and it's close to the beach, right? There's, there's a lot of motivators for, for why you might make the decisions that you make, why you save the way you save, why you travel the way you travel, the thing you teach your kids, whether you have kids, right? And there are some, there are some good ones, right? but there's not a single one that influences every single facet of your life the way that the gospel does. And so what is this gospel message that, that does this? Well, I want to give it to you quickly, and I want to give it to you in six parts. This is the way we teach it here, and this is the way I want to make sure that every person here has at least heard once. The gospel message can first only be understood by starting with God. That there is a God of this world, there's a God of this universe that has created all things. He is all-powerful, he is all-just, he is all-merciful, and he has given you and I the gift of life. And that without that, we wouldn't even experience life. We wouldn't be sitting here in these pews. There would be no creation around us. Outside of his sovereign gift to us, giving us breath in our lungs and giving us life to live and experience. And this God is not just a God that made everything, but he's a God that, that, that upholds what is right. He, he defines what is right and wrong, and he upholds what is right and wrong. And so the second part of the gospel, starting with the creator God of the universe, is man, is with whom he created, to be in his likeness, to be in his image, which is you and I. Again, we have been made to be like God by him who is perfectly and ultimately good and holy, who has given us then a standard by which we ought to live, which is simply to follow him, simply to live in accordance with his ways and not our own trusting that he knows best because he made us as well as everything else infinitely that we can see and can't see. And scripture tells us that every single man that has ever lived has made the same decision, which is to rebel against that God. It's to rebel against the, the standard of good and bad that God has made and to, to willingly choose bad. Every person from the foundation of the world has chosen to sin against this holy God. And that might sound harsh, um, one, to just say that all have done it, but it sounds even more harsh when you consider the consequence, which is that we then, we, are, we, we have warranted then life apart from God, eternal life apart from God. That's what we deserve in our rebellion. And it might sound harsh, but the reason why we start with God who is eternal and, is, and who is holy, and we say this often, but... And again, if our, if, our, if our sin or if our shortcoming is against somebody tangible and physical, then it just, it warrants a tangible and physical consequence, right? But our sin's not against one that's tangible, not against one that's temporary, right? But against one that is eternal and against one that is uh, invisible, right? Against one that is lasting. Therefore, our consequence must be equal, and so there's a God who made us, and as man we have all sinned against that holy God. But the Bible tells us that even from Genesis, early in Genesis, that God foreshadowed, that he, he promised the sending of himself in the person of Jesus to offer hope. Because we had none, church. There was nothing you and I could have done on our own being that would have earned salvation that would have got us to a point where we could make things right with God. We were totally helpless and incapable of finding our way back. 
And so God sent himself in the person of Jesus who was both fully God but also came as fully man so that he could actually live the life that you and I were supposed to live sin-free and in full subjection to God's authority and glory and direction. He then paid the, the penalty that we were owed that we couldn't pay, on our, pay ourselves by dying on a cross. But he didn't just pay the penalty. He also de defeated the consequences of death once and for all by raising from the grave three days later. And gifting us the righteous reward that he earned, which is union with God, cemented forever. It is accessible freely to you and I. So you have God, you have man's sinfulness, and you have Jesus. And the fourth aspect of the gospel is response. Right? That, that's the good news, right? That, that Jesus has come and made a way for you to have a relationship with him, but it involves response. Right? It's not just something he forces on you, that, uh, but, but we have a part in it. Say by grace through faith. And so we respond, one, with faith. We respond with belief, and we respond with a, a, a life of sanctification. That we're going to live our life for him as a result of what he's done for us. And so we have God, we have sinfulness of man, we have Jesus, we have the response of man, and then we have the assurance that comes. Because the Bible teaches us that when, when we've responded to the good news of the gospel, the free gift of God's grace poured out through the person of Jesus to, to not only pay the consequence of our sin, but give us the righteous reward of, of eternity with God forever, that we can actually have assurance in that truth. And assurance comes in the form of the Holy Spirit that the Bible says lives within us, that is our evidence, that is the, the, the down payment of the inheritance that we will receive. And so you can actually know that you know you're saved by the evidence of the, of the Holy Spirit within you. And the sixth and final part of the, the gospel is, is the evidence, is that you now get to live that out for the world to see. And here's the thing, I know that might be a lot of parts, it might be different than how you've heard it, but if you remove any one of those six parts, you no longer have the gospel. And that's not to say that if you don't present the gospel using those exact six things, then you're presenting it wrong, but rather that that somehow within there, if you, if you don't have God, then we haven't been created in the first place. And so there's, there's really nothing at all, right? Because all things come from him. If you don't have the sinfulness of man, then we have no need for the, the saving work of Jesus because we're already in right relationship with God. But, it, we, but as it is, we do have the sinfulness of man. And so if you don't have the saving work of Jesus, then we're just stuck in our, in our total inability to save ourselves, destined for God's eternal wrath for all of eternity. And if you don't have response, well, how are we going to receive the good gift that God has made available to us? Right? And if you don't have assurance, then how can you actually know whether or not you've been saved? And so you're left feeling the need to work for your salvation and make sure you've done enough that you've actually responded correctly. Right? But as it is, we're given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And if there's no evidence, then how do you know that the Holy Spirit is in you? And so the, the, the message... To tie back, the message that, that, that is dictating Paul's life is that one. Because there is no other message that has eternal ramifications. There is no other message that, that saves souls. There is no other message that leads to an eternal joy 
other than that one. And so Paul had made a decision, and, and not even that he could totally make it on his own, but is also empowered by the Spirit that is within him that not only assures him of his salvation, but grants him the ability to, to live out that salvation and to, to go places for the purpose of, of, of persecution and chains and torment and death because it advances that message so that others might know as well. And so I want to ask you, is, is that motivating your life? Is that the single greatest motivator in your life? The gospel. Because if it's not, then I would challenge whether we've actually heard it. Because once you've heard it, once you know it, and as Paul said in Philippians 3, once it's taken hold of you, then you have no, but no other desire to have than to continue in that knowledge, but also to make sure as many other people know it as possible, counting this life and, and anything that might happen in it of no value in comparison to the, the glory that awaits in Christ Jesus. So I encourage you to, to reflect on your own life and ask, do I have the same motivation that Paul has? Because if we do, it, it will inevitably, as I said in the main point, it will inevitably lead to goodbyes, to, to, to celebratory, uh, faithful, encouraging goodbyes for the sake of gospel advancement. And I don't mean that to say that we're all going to leave this place, and I'll get, get more specifics on what I mean by that in a moment. But we must have the same motivation of Paul. Which leads then finally to Paul's farewell. I want to read verses 25 through 31. He says again, And now I know that none of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, because I did not avoid declaring to you the whole plan of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to Shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up even from among your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Therefore, be on alert, remembering that night and day for three years, I never stopped warning each one of you with tears." And here's really the question I want. I want to ask two final questions. The first question is with those verses, which is, what made Paul's farewell easy? And I'm not saying that, that it was easy, right? He, he labored over, right? He had tears. It was, it was hard for him to leave. But what made him able to actually do it? What, what, what joy was there in it? What encouragement was left after he's leaving, again, the church he'd been at the longest than anywhere else? In his ministry. It's interesting. Verse, verse 26 has been maybe the most encouraging verse to me in this whole process of knowing that we're going to be leaving this church family. And at first glance, it's not a very encouraging verse. I'll read it again. He says, Therefore I declare to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. Right, when I first read that, the, the kind of the connotation I hear that with is, um, you know, I, I'm free, right? Like, I'm brushing my hands off, like, it's, it's on you now. If anything bad happens, it's on you. 
Right? But the more I've read it and the more I've reflected on it, and again, Paul's a pretty blunt, direct guy. This is his way of saying, yes, my, my hands are clear. I'm innocent of the blood that is on your heads. And the reason he's able to say this is because he knows that he has given, him, given them everything he could possibly give them. He, he, is, he goes on to say that he has not avoided declaring the whole plan of God, the whole counsel of God, all, of, all there is that he could possibly have communicated. He hasn't held anything back. Right? So what, what gives him joy is to know that, that he's, already, he's done everything he could possibly do in proclaiming the gospel and discipling the, the elders of this church and really this church as a whole. And so the joy is to know that he, could, he didn't spare anything. I, I remember playing sports, and for any of, those, any of you who have played sports, you've, you've probably heard your coach say along the line, like, when the clock hits zero, right, you want to have nothing left. Right, you, you want there to be, you got nothing left in the tank. You want to end the game, especially if you lose, thinking, man, I still had a little bit left in the tank. Right? Or if you're a runner, right, and you cross the finish line, like, man, I, I still had a little bit left. I could have pushed a little bit harder. I didn't need to, to pace myself as early the way I did. Right, what Paul's saying is here is he's got nothing left for them. He's already given them the whole gospel. He's discipled them for, for three years, he says, praying for them. And so he's able to leave joyfully knowing that he has maximized his relationship with them. It doesn't mean it's not so hard. It doesn't mean he's not still going to miss them. He still writes them a letter, so he still updates, he still encourages. But he's able to leave with confidence and joy and encouragement because he knows that the gospel was shared to those people. That they knew. But what about for the Ephesian elders? What's their encouragement? Acts chapter 20, verse 36 and 38. He says, after he said this, or after he said this, as he knelt down and prayed with all of them, there were many tears shed by everyone. They embraced Paul and kissed him, grieving most of all over his statement that they would never see his face again. But then the last words there, and they accompanied him to the ship. Right, and so they were in it with him until the very last moment that he left. And so what's their encouragement? To know that the one whom is leaving is leaving for the very sake of the reason he came to them, which is that the gospel might be shared. Right, it would have been one thing if Paul just said, forget this Christian thing, I'm out. Right, that would have been harder. Right, but their greatest joy and encouragement was to know that, that, that Paul's leaving was, was to further advance God's kingdom to further advance the gospel, the good news, the only one that has eternal significance in this life. And so, yes, there's emotions, right? But their heart knowledge allows them to rejoice and celebrate because they know the same gospel that was preached to them. They know he is going to preach as he goes. And here's, what I wanna, here's how I want to tie this in. Here's how I want to close things. And so the worship team can go ahead and come back up. Is I want you to think about the relationships you have in your life. Because again, every relationship you have, every single one, you will eventually say goodbye. Right? Whether that's they, they leave and move town, whether that's they, a, a job takes them somewhere else, or whether you're friends here on this earth, but ultimately... They pass, whether before you or after. A goodbye will be said in one way or another by all people. And I want you to think about 
all the relationships you have in your life, church. I want you to think about the relationships you have with your family. I want you to think about the relationships you have with those here in the pew, your next door neighbors, the people you kind of just have the, the hey, how are you relationship, and it doesn't always go deeper than that. And I want you to ask yourself, if, if you were forced in one way or another, because we don't all know our timing, whether God's going to call us to, again, leave and go somewhere, whether God's going to call someone around us to leave and go somewhere, or whether we are called home. And I want you to ask yourself this question. Could you say the same thing that Paul said to the Ephesian elders? Could you say within your heart that, that I'm innocent of their blood in a loving way to say that I have not withheld or I have not kept myself from proclaiming the, the fullness of God's gospel to them? Or would we be left wishing there was more in the tank, knowing there was more to be said. Instead of, instead of putting all our personal comforts aside, knowing that, that again, as, as Paul said, there, for him there was, there was chains and there was, there was torture and there was, there was death awaiting him, but he considers life of no value. And so those things weren't going to get in the way of the message that he was going to proclaim. Yet I think for some of us, we, we let those things get in the way. Right? The, the comfort of whether they're going to respond well and knowing that we're going to see him again the next day when we just pushed a little too far on the gospel the day before. Right? Or maybe worried that they're going to ask us a question that we don't know the answer to. Or whatever else it might be. But church, my, my, my hope for us is that we can say the same words as Paul. And again, that doesn't mean that, does not mean that we are perfect. It does not mean that we don't mess up. There have been times where I've said biblically inaccurate things from the pulpit from which I've had to come back and say I was wrong when I said that. Right? And there have been, there have been lots of things over the course of, of, of my ministry and over the course of the relationship that you have with the people around you where, again, the expectation is not perfection. Right? Paul, as much as we like to lift him up, was not perfect. He was chief sinner. But the one thing he could say here is that he gave them everything he had. And that's my hope for us as a church. That's my hope that every relationship, whenever that goodbye comes, whether it's a pastor leaving, whether it's family members, whether it's someone passing away, that we would have encouragement and joy and reason to celebrate and knowing that we communicated the gospel to them. And that's not to say that there's going to be different levels of that in different situations, right? Paul spent, you know, two, three years in Ephesus. He spent a few weeks uh, in Thessalonica initially. He spent very different amounts of time, right? And that's not to say that he didn't, because he didn't communicate the exact amount of stuff, he wasn't faithful to proclaim the gospel, right? Most times we're going to be seed planters. Right? Most times we're not going to see the fruit that Paul experienced here or Philip experienced in Samaria. But when we leave, whether it was planting seeds, whether it was, can we look back and say, I'm, I'm confident that I didn't hold back from the way that God asked me to share to those people. And I can leave knowing that everything God asks me to do, I've been faithful and I've done. Even in the mistakes, even in the shortcomings, and that they can be encouraged to know that I'm going to continue doing it wherever I go. 
That's my personal hope. That's my personal prayer. And that's my personal hope and prayer for you. That we treat the gospel as the gift that it is. It matters more than anything else this world has to offer. Greatest motivator of our life. That we wouldn't leave anything left on the table. We would communicate it as if it really were the best thing that there is. The greatest news that there is. So I want to close and I want to give uh, three invitations as we, as we always do um, or we often do. Uh, the first invitation is if when I shared the gospel earlier, God, the creator of all things, sinfulness of man, our rebellion against him, Jesus and his saving work on the cross and, and, and his resurrection, defeating death and his gift of eternal righteousness, um, the response um, through confession, um, belief, and faith. The assurance you can have by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the evidence of a new life lived, that's totally new to you. And you've never understood the gospel and you've never understood that there, there is something out there that's better, that lasts, and you'd like to know more. Um, I'm going to be up at the front and I would love to talk with you and pray with you. Um, that you might know the same truth that led someone like Paul to lay his whole life down for and still consider it joy. And then secondly, if you're here and you have accepted the gospel, but as you've thought about the relationships in your life and you've thought, you know, maybe I've held back a little bit, you know, and you've thought that if, if for whatever reason a goodbye was had, you'd feel like you left a little bit out there and you want to be committed and convinced to, to live differently with a single motivator that is the gospel in uh, whatever capacity that looks like for you, but you know you need to repent and you need to, to follow after and to seek him more deeply and to live it out in the relationships around you. We invite you to respond as well. The altar is open. I'll also be at the front and I would love to pray with you. And then the last invitation is if you are not a part of a church family, um, I would encourage you to consider Arlington Baptist Church to be your church home. Um, we are not a perfect church. Uh, we are the church that is going through a, a pastor transition. Um, but we are a church that I promise you, whether Pastor Caleb or any of the staff or any of the teachers of the, of the word here, will seek to elevate this above anything else. And so I invite you to respond. If you'd like to know more about officially joining and what that even means, being a part of Arlington Baptist Church, again, I'll be at the front and I'd love to pray with you. But wherever you are, we all must respond to the word. Um, scripture tells us the word doesn't come back void. Um, and so we're, we respond even with lack of response. And so I encourage you to respond as the spirit leads this morning. Um, and let's... Let's live according to the gospel together as one church here at ABC. Let's pray.